0: It's a moment I think I will probably remember forever. My wife Loretta had just given birth to our son Henry by a cesarean section. The surgery had gone well and so did the birth and I was standing there up by Loretta's face trying to avoid looking at anything bloody and feeling good about how things had gone. i had had the easy job supporting her and just being thankful that things had gone so smoothly. And it was time for us to make the move from the surgical suite down to the recovery room when one of the nurses turned to me and said, Okay, Mom, why don't you push the bassinet? And I froze. (laughs) Me? Push the bassinet? Are you kidding me? There is no way I am qualified for this. (laughs) (laughs) I think I tried really hard to hide my horror that she had asked me to do this big task. You know, our son was probably asleep, swaddled, and in a safe bassinet. But no, I was so scared to push him down the hallway. I was unfit, unqualified. I had made false starts. I couldn't possibly be the one. You must be kidding, I thought. But no, she kept looking at me. I was going to have to push the bassinet down the hall, and I did. I did it very slowly and carefully. I probably went slower than Loretta would have done had she gotten up and walked, but I did (laughs) it. I think that we know this feeling. I am not fit. I am not worthy. There is no way I could be the one in this moment whom you are asking to do this task. Over the generations, we know this is a common human experience. The Hebrew, and scripture, uh, he, the Hebrew and Christian scriptures talk about this experience again and again of being called, but of feeling unworthy, unable. They talk about Moses, who is known as the one who brought God's Ten Commandments, and yet also in the scriptures it tells the story of Moses saying, Oh no, no, I am a terrible public speaker. There is no way I am going to do this job. I think whether it is parenthood or marriage or a friendship that we are in the midst of, whether it's something that's coming up at school or at work, whether it's answering the call of our heart to stand on the side of love and work for justice, whatever it is, I think we know that feeling of, no, you must have the wrong person. You can't be looking at me to do this. There's no way. My, I'm too busy. I, my life is too full. I don't have what it takes. I'm unfit ask someone else. We know that feeling that the poet talks about this morning, and we know, too, that there are moments when we are the one, when we must answer yes, whether that word comes to our lips fiercely or haltingly, it is us. We are the ones who must be sent. The members of our pastoral care team here at church have heard a call and answered yes to it. They have stepped forward with their full lives, with their human selves, with the training and support and spiritual grounding of this church, and they have said yes. They will be there with us. They will make the love that we talk about every week here tangible through their actions and their commitments. It takes all of us to care for one another, to work for justice in our world, to care for this church of nearly a thousand members and so many friends and many of you offer that care and support. As you sit in the service today, I hope that you will hear a call to step forward in a way that feels right to you. If caring for others here at church is the right way for you, I hope you'll stop by the tables in the foyer after the service this morning and visit with Kathy Cosgren and Kathy Erberg, the co-leaders of our congregational care ministry. They will be there inviting you to sign up to be called upon when needs arise. There'll be lists to be on for folks who want to make and deliver a meal or offer an occasional ride, to knit comfort shawls and baby hats, to support our memorial receptions, and new this year, to help with small jobs that help our older or differently-abled church members and friends stay in their homes. All of these opportunities are there for us to say yes to when we are able. But how do we know if the moment is right? How do we know if we are the ones that we've been waiting for or if it is our time instead to step aside and make room for others to step forward? Maybe others who have been left out of the spotlight, not called upon, left out of leadership. How do we know when it's our time to lead or our time to follow? How do we know when it is our time to say, no, right now I need to care for my family? for myself, for my friends, to finally face up to the addiction or the illness or the struggle that we need to cope with, to reach out to others for support? How do we know if we are the only ones to send in all of our imperfections, and how do we know when it's time to say no? As we head into this new worship theme titled, We Are the Ones That We've Been Waiting For, this is the question I want us to be asking ourselves. How is it that we discern when it is uniquely us that must go? How do we know when what is before us is what we say yes to or what we say no to? In a world where it is so often easy to sit back and isolate ourselves in disconnection, to isolate ourselves in our own lives, especially if we're busy, especially if we are white, especially if we are financially comfortable, how is it that we hear the call of our world and how do we discern what it is uniquely ours to do? This past week I went out to see the movie Selma and I highly recommend it. As somebody who grew up hearing the stories of the civil rights movement, while reading them, and you know, hearing speeches, and hearing the music and the stories, it was especially powerful to see this movement represented visually, to see the story of this moment in time on the big screen, to get to explore with the film the inward lives of the marchers and the organizers, not just to see the facts of the history on a timeline, or to read the words of a speech. One of the scenes that really stuck with me was one that centered on Martin Luther King Jr. and his wife, Coretta. The FBI had sent a letter and a recording to the King home, accusing Dr. King of infidelities and encouraging him to kill himself. This is true stuff, by the way, not just made up for the movie. Our FBI had decided that it would try to drive a wedge in this important marriage and relationship to threaten both of them with public disclosure in an attempt to discredit Martin Luther King Jr. Now in the scene in the movie, Coretta was asking Martin a series of questions, and it was clear that the two were facing one of those turning point moments in their marriage. Martin was supposed to leave at 5 a.m. that morning to go lead what would be the first attempt of the march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, a march where hundreds of peaceful, nonviolent protesters were gathering to disrupt traffic, to draw attention to the situation about voting rights there in Alabama. Now, in the scene on that night, that Saturday night, after his conversation with his wife, Coretta, Dr. King got on the phone with some of the organizers of the march that was going to go from Selma to Montgomery. He was talking to his friend and colleague in organizing, and he said, we're going to have to hold the march. I can't come. I need to be here. I need to be at home right now. His friend and colleague on the other end of the line urged him to reconsider. The people are ready, he said. They won't wait. We can't stand to wait. Let us begin. Let us begin, and you join us the next day. In the movie, you can see Dr. King dipping his head in maybe what is prayer, maybe what is discernment, maybe concentration, and he reluctantly agrees to let the march go forward without him. Then you see Dr. King sitting around the dinner table with his family, It's clearly the next day, it's a moment that you can tell doesn't happen as often as they all wish that it would. Dr. King had made the decision to stay home as husband and father and the march went on without him. Now when the civil rights leaders down in Selma on that Saturday night had heard that Dr. King wasn't coming, they got together to decide who was going to lead the march in his absence. There's no shortage of able, faithful men and women Folks stepped forward, and some of the perhaps lesser-known folks led the march. John Lewis and Hosea Williams and hundreds went behind them, attempting to cross the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And we know now that is the day that is known in our history as Bloody Sunday, the day when hundreds of those peaceful protesters were kicked and beaten and gassed, when the scene of what was unfolding there on the bridge was shown on national TV. And in that moment, American conscience awoke and we saw the truth about how people were being treated. On that day, in that moment in history, Dr. King was at home. He had decided to stay home and others had stepped in to lead in his absence. As I watched this, I was imagining what might have been going through Dr. King's mind as he was on that phone conversation. As he bowed his head, whether it was in prayer or discernment, concentration, I imagined that he was asking himself some big questions. Where am I needed most right now? Where am I the only one who will do? Should I be leading the march? Should I be staying home with my family? What is it that is uniquely mine to do here? Now through the actions of his whole life, Dr. King showed us that so often the choice is to go. The choice is to walk into what we are perhaps most afraid of, to lead the march, to walk for justice, to stand on the side of love. But in this moment, captured in this film, in this moment, he showed that there are other choices too. Choices that tend to our spirits and our relationships, Choices that make room for new leadership to emerge. Choices that remind us that while we are important, we are not everything, and we are not alone. It's several years ago now I sat and listened to the stories of a leader whom I admired greatly. Through his work and his character, he was known as an ethical and moral guide someone to admire and to look up to, someone who I wanted to grow up and be like, even when I was 30, watching him. He was somebody that was sharing these stories of his career, of his life. And as I sat and listened, he shared the more vulnerable stories, too. They're reflecting back on 80 years of life. And he said, there are moments that I missed. Not so much moments at work, but moments at home. There were moments that I missed when I was the only one who could have been the father to my child, the son to my parents, the husband to my wife. There were moments that I simply wasn't there. I don't think he was trying to hold himself up to some model of perfection. I think it was a moment of clarity. Listening to these stories... It left me first wanting to learn how to balance, and then later, perhaps more realistically, these stories have left me wanting to learn how to discern. How do I discern when it is that I am the one that must be sent, and when it is that I may stay? I think no matter what our work is, no matter what the demands are that pull on our lives and on our conscience, I think that most of us are faced with dilemmas from time to time, choices when, where it is up to us to discern, am I going to do this or that? What is the call that I am hearing? Is it the call of love and conscience? Is it the lure of isolation, the temptation of avoidance, the comfort of privilege, or the hubris of ego that I am hearing? Sometimes it is easy to tell the difference. Other times, not so much. I know for me, I need a circle of people around me. I need to draw on my spiritual practices to truly hear the voice of love and conscience with clarity. Some of you might remember it was just about a year ago, about this time of year, when I went out of town unexpectedly and missed a Sunday when I was scheduled to preach here. It was the first time that I had ever missed a preaching engagement by choice, and it wasn't an easy decision to make. In fact, I think if I hadn't been having lunch with a group of dear colleagues and friends that preceding Thursday afternoon, I'm not sure that the decision would have come out that way at all. You see, I had gotten a call on Wednesday night that my oldest and closest friend's mother had died suddenly at her home. It was a shock to her and her family and to me, as I loved this woman dearly too. So I was in a bit of a fog on Thursday when I showed up at this lunch with my friends, but I had already made my decision. I was gonna stay in Minnesota through the weekend, I was gonna preach on Sunday, and then I was gonna catch the next flight down to Maryland. I told my friends and colleagues at lunch on Thursday about my super responsible plan, and they had a couple of things to say to me. Really? At At a church with four ministers, ''Really? You can't go any sooner?'' (laughs) ''You know,'' another one said, ''you are the only person who can be exactly who you are for your friend. You are the only one who has known her since she was 13. You're the only one that was there when her sister was born. You're the only one who happens to be a minister and have connections in the D.C. area. You should go.'' ''I'll preach for you,'' another one said, And pretty soon, the arrangements were being made, and you all were blessed to hear the Reverend Meg Riley that Sunday, and I was on my way to Maryland. Now, the truth is, this was a harder decision than my inner critic says it should have been. There were so many loud, helpful voices going on in my head. They were having this wrestling match while I was trying to figure out what the right decision was going to be. I didn't want to disappoint anybody. I didn't want to be a disappointment to the church to make it look like maybe I didn't take my ministry seriously, maybe I wasn't responsible and reliable. But I think more than that, it was hubris too. There was a part of me that thought I could do all of it and do it well. I didn't realize my own limitations and that you all were actually much better served by having Meg here than me. I didn't realize until my friends spoke to me that I needed to slow down and make a choice. Thank God for friends, thank God for colleagues. I've often said that spending time with my old friends and telling the truth is one of the most important of my spiritual practices. It's one of those things that absolutely reminds me of who I am and who I am called to be in this world that has all kinds of opinions about what I should do. Who are we, who are we called to be? What is it that we are uniquely called to do in this moment? This is the question I want us to hold as we explore this worship theme together, this theme of we are the ones that we have been waiting for. What is uniquely ours to do? When must it be us, and when might someone else perhaps be better? What can we lean on Where do we draw our courage and our strength? How do we listen and discern when these questions come to us? What can we draw on? And how can we look at the patterns of history, the patterns of oppression and domination in our country and maybe in our own lives, and maybe decide it is better to wait, to let someone else step forward instead of us, to allow that space and step out of a familiar pattern. How do we let go of the guilt or accept the peace that comes when we acknowledge we cannot do it all? There is not a clean hand or a pure heart among us. Innocence is long gone for most of us, and many of us are exhausted, unfit, busy, and involved. And yet there is a voice to be heard, a voice of love and conscience that is calling us. A voice of love and conscience that reminds us of who we are and who we are meant to be. This voice of love and conscience that reminds us that we are part of a rhythm of the generations. A rhythm that calls us forward to do what each of us can uniquely do. And a rhythm that lets us relax into the reality that we are not alone. We never have been. May it be so. And amen.